Okay, I wanted to learn about the lost uh, Gospels on Gaia. So let's see. Mm, lost works. Uh, let's see, here we go. Lost history of the Essenes. William Henry, and this is Ascension Keepers. About two to three hundred years before the Christian era, a remarkable mystical movement arose. The core ideas of this movement came from Alexandria, Egypt, but it spread to Palestine where these mystics set up shop, so to speak. In Egypt, these mystics were called the Therapeutae, the healers. They were known for their flowing white robes. They established an embassy outside the walls of Alexandria on the shores of Lake Mariatus near Alexandria. In Palestine, they were called Essenes and Nazarites or Nazarenes, meaning watchers, because they were watching for a high celestial being they believed was soon to visit Earth. Although they were primarily but not exclusively Jewish, the Essenes were master weavers of Egyptian, Iranian, Greek, and Tibetan ascension practices. In fact, for three centuries, beginning in 300 BC, the forerunners of this mystic tribe had been following the way of the Magi, researching and merging Babylonian, Egyptian, Iranian, Pythagorean, and Buddhist alchemical philosophies and ascension practices that feature humans opening holes in space and ascending into heaven. In my opinion, they would heavily influence the Essenes and early Christianity. From these teachings, they began writing about translating humans into angels, opening gateways to heaven, and the emergence of a new, improved child of light who would win a war over the sons of darkness and inaugurate a new era of light. calling themselves the perfect ones or the way of perfection or perfect light humans, they seek to lead a revolution in human evolution that would result in the appearance of a new type of human and a different human experience in our world. We will use this word perfect as a sort of a golden needle to weave a thread through various ascension traditions. The word perfect means to become more whole, more holy, more complete, and cosmic. According to mystical Jewish tradition, Adam and Eve, as archetypes of the human race, wore celestial garments of light, which was actually a luminescent body that glows or radiates light like a rainbow. The Essenes believed our purpose and goal in life was to return to our original divine state and recover our garments of light, remembering our light bodies would lead to a transformed world, they believed. Early sources say the Essenes lived on Mount Carmel in northern Israel, but they also operated a hermetically sealed compound at Qumran and elsewhere. Calling themselves the children of light, 
The Essenes literally saw themselves in a cosmic war against the children of darkness, who they believed were incarnated as the Roman Empire. They claimed they were making the way for the arrival of a high celestial being who would lead a revolution in human evolution, transforming Earth and humanity into a golden planet of righteousness and the human race into its most perfect state of being. Many believe Jesus was this celestial being. Even more incredible is the Essenes' claim that they were living, living with an advanced race of angels or extraterrestrials. These angels, who took human form, were known as the Watchers. They were teaching the Essenes the art of ascension or how to transform our earthly flesh into a celestial flesh and ascend to a celestial city they referred to as Sion or the New Jerusalem. Out to stop all this mystical nonsense are the children of darkness who the Essenes believe were incarnate in the mighty Roman Empire, the reigning cabal on earth. In my opinion, the accounts of the Essenes' interactions with the Celestials are contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the texts they left behind. These extraordinary texts affirm there was something truly unusual and mystically special about the Essenes. They are quintessentially spiritual, oriented towards the celestial realm and its otherworldly inhabitants. Their goal was an alliance with the upper world. The scrolls describe cosmic battles, beings, portals, hidden agendas, and new superhumans. And cloaked behind it all is the celestial city, the home and mother church of their angelic teachers and the target of their ascension and how humans can ascend there. The dark side won a major victory in AD 68 when the Romans decimated the Essenes in an early example of ethnic cleansing or spiritual genocide. With the destruction of the Essenes and the murder of almost a million of these souls, their ascension teachings were lost, stashed in caves near Qumran, but they were not forgotten. Mystical luminaries sought their teachings for ages. Believing in reincarnation, it's possible the Essenes knew that their disappearance at the hands of the Romans was a temporary state of affairs. They would return. The Essenes' cache of scrolls, in fact, was rediscovered by chance in 1947. In my view, these texts describe the process by which all the Therapeutae, or members of the Essene community, entered or ascended into the angelic life. The Essenes sought this bodily and spiritual perfection in order to cross over a veil or a boundary then and commune with these beings and to stand united with the angels before God and to live in a state of perfect light for all eternity. One scroll speaks directly of this transformation and thou hast cleansed the perverse spirit from many sins that he might enter into the station with the army of the saints and enter into communion with the sons of heaven. And thou hast cast an everlasting destiny for man in the company of the spirits of knowledge that he might praise thy name in concord and recount thy marvels before thy works. In my view, the word sin simply means to miss the mark or to fall short of perfection 
It basically means to be embodied in fallen and imperfect human flesh as opposed to our original and perfect glorious light bodies of celestial flesh. The purpose of cleansing or perfecting the spirit and overcoming sin is so that one may better serve God, but ultimately it enables one to enter the heavenly realms and live in communion with the sons of heaven as perfect light beings in the celestial city, according to the Essenes. The Essenes have an aura of profound mystery about them. Writing in the first century AD, the Roman writer Pliny mysteriously claimed that they had existed for thousands of ages, hinting that they are part of a forgotten eternal race that he says exists outside of time. This may be the race later referred to as the immovable race of perfect light humans, or simply as the race in the secret book of John, a Gnostic text of secret teachings. Becoming perfect light humans was clearly the goal of the Essenes. Philo, the famous first century AD Jewish philosopher living in Alexandria, Egypt, also briefly discussed the Essenes in his works, Every Good Man is Free and Hypothetica. Intriguingly, he traced their origins to the time of Moses, the Hebrew Messiah or Magi who emerged as a radiant being after a meeting with God in a burning bush to lead his people to freedom and who supervised the construction or assembly of the Ark of the Covenant. The burning man or angel he encountered was described as luminous, humanoid, and with a rainbow aura, one of many such beings we will encounter in our journey. Says Philo, multitudes of his disciples has the lawgiver trained for the life and fellowship. These people are called Essenes, a name awarded them doubtless in recognition of their holiness. And we have to remember holiness means to be luminous, radiant, and angelic. Others trace the Essenes' origins to Enoch, the incredible pre-flood sage, the first human translated to heaven. During his ascension, the Archangel Michael anointed Enoch's body with an oil that dissolved his body into rainbow-colored light that matched that of the angels. Take note of the rainbow-angel connection. It will recur repeatedly and is a key to understanding the Essenes in their quest to become perfect light humans. These statements make it clear that the Essenes were ancient, they knew mystical secrets, and these secrets had to do with human transformation into celestial beings and ascension. The purpose of the Qumran community is precisely described in the call of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, to prepare the way for the Messiah in the desert wilderness, to prepare a people to meet the Lord. Simply, the Essenes believed a high celestial being was on its way to earth, and they had a plan to manifest this event. During this visitation, says the community rule, the high heavenly being would reveal the mysteries of eternal being concealed from humankind. At that time, the righteous will be rewarded with healing, great peace and a long life and fruitfulness together with every everlasting blessing and eternal joy and life without end. A crown of glory and a garment of majesty and unending light, says the community rule. The goal of the Essene initiates was to attain this crown and garment, 
And actually, they said it's the goal of all humans in all ages. The community rule affirms the Essenes were a most holy community who walk in perfection. Their writings contain their teachings about the perfection of this garment of majesty and unending light, actually an angelic light body composed of celestial flesh as opposed to earthly or human flesh. This is the state of being of the perfect light humans mentioned earlier. In Essene philosophy, the word perfection relates to wholeness, holiness, compassion, and completion in preparation for ascension to a celestial city they called the New Jerusalem. Perfection is synonymous with angelification or angelomorphism as the academics refer to it. This is human transformation into an angel. My research reveals that to link the Essenes' understanding of perfection with the Tibetan Buddhist concept of the great perfection or human transformation into the rainbow light body. Tibetan sacred art portrays this transformation as a flowing, vibrating, pulsating robe of rainbow light enlightened with gold. In my opinion, this is the same as the glory body or resurrection body of Jesus, the high celestial being the Essenes were calling in. What I noticed is that the symbols of the rainbow body gurus, including Padmasambhava, include his crown of glory, the resurrection stick and radiating rainbow light are the same symbols as those of the Israelite high priest. As we will see, it links these two traditions and tells us there is an esoteric meaning to the Essene teachings. Ascension to the Essenes is a process by which righteous humans are taken to heaven and exist in the presence of God and wear the robe of light. Properly attired, they were now ready to come into the presence of God, and this is what the Essenes termed resurrection. Some maintain that this resurrected state of being only lasted a brief moment. They suggest these initiates and adepts would enter in an, into an otherworldly place and experience a brief trial run encounter with the higher realms and then would come right back into their physical body. Others maintain that the resurrection or ascension and their transformation into an angel was a permanent experience. And before continuing, we need to address a very important question. Why were they called Essenes? Essene, what does the word mean? The answer takes us to the heart of the Essenes' mission. The most favorable definition is the one given by Josephus, a historian who is a one-time Essene but turned into a Roman soldier and servant of the empire. In his Antiquities of the Jews, he gave a description of the vestments worn by the Israelite high priest. Josephus explains that the outer vestment was called the ephod, and part of this vestment, he says, was the esen, a transliteration of the Hebrew word hoshen, meaning breastplate. Hoshen was translated into Greek as esen, which means oracle and breastpiece of judgment. This breastpiece, he says, is the origin of their name. Josephus' description of the Asen is alluring. It had 12 different colored stones, 
each of them with the name of one of the twelve tribes of Jacob, who famously ascended on the ladder of heaven in the book of Genesis and returned to earth to found the nation of Israel. These stones were arranged three to a row in four rows, and when the sunlight hit these stones, the high priest would have radiated rainbow light. The ascent also contains an additional two stones referred to as the Urim and Thummim, which means revelation or truth, as well as lights and perfections. Later interpreters derived the word from the root word light and related it to the root be complete, finished, whole, or perfect. The ascent is therefore a key part of the garments the high priest would don before crossing the veil and entering the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple. This cube-shaped room whose walls were lined with gold was a place where extraordinary things occurred. Mortals entered into this golden cube as humans, stood on the footstool, the Ark of the Covenant, ascended to a place of illumination via this throne, were transformed into angels and returned from heaven alive. Scholars, led by Dr. Margaret Barker, debate whether or not this ascension was a literal experience or simply metaphorical. The garments worn by the high priest were real, but the experience of transformation into light was imagined, some believe. I'm of the view that the ascension was a literal transformation of human flesh into celestial flesh and that the garments of the high priest were metaphorical, symbolic, or imagined. My research reveals that the components of this garment, the crown, the breastplate, the belt, and sandals, are psycho-spiritual attributes activated in the consciousness of the high priests in preparation for their ascension to higher realms. Here, we see the high priest Zechariah receiving word from the archangel Gabriel that his aged wife will soon have a son, John the Baptist, who many revere as the great Essene master initiator. In his Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus hints at these assumptions about ascension and the Urim and Thummim when he says that on the ascend also there are stones, twelve in number, of extraordinary size and beauty, an ornament not procurable by man by reason of its surpassing value. Listen to that line again. Not procurable by man by reason of its surpassing value? If a human cannot procure it, who can? How about God and the angels, or humans who are more than human, but in between God and the angels? That's the Essenes. The breastplate of righteousness, the Asen, and the Urim and Thummim stones did not operate on their own. They were part of a kit of tools, devices, or apps, if you will, of the high priest that are further identified by the Apostle Paul in his letters to the officiants, written while he was in prison in Rome in AD 62. In the letter, Paul gives advice on living a holy, pure, and Christ-inspired life. In chapter 4, he tells how to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, he says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, he said. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. 
Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Then, Paul warns of a coming, or is it an ongoing, cosmic battle? In my opinion, this is why Paul is clearly telling the officiants to put on the ascend as a way to overcome the children of darkness. He is clearly urging us to augment or supplement the human body with spiritual tools for a battle against an otherworldly dark force or in order to ascend. I understand this armor to be metaphorical and psycho-spiritual. It comes from within. It's something that we externalize, embody, or exude. As Paul says, the use of this spiritual technology forms a shield of faith, a suit of cosmic armor or a second skin that seals and protects us and also permits access to realms off-limits to humans clothed only in ordinary skin. Scholars have discovered that Paul's letter to the officiants reflects Essene texts. They now see that this letter was written for readers with Essene eyes. So it's important to note that Paul is writing to multitudes of people in Ephesus. Josephus records that many of the Essenes had the ability to predict the future. Did they do so because they all were wearing the breastplate? No. Once again, this suggests that more than one person wore this extraordinary ensemble simultaneously. In fact, they implore the entire tribe of Essenes to be holy. By definition, this means to wear the spiritual armor or second skin. In order for this to work, there must have been more than one of these Essene breastplates. But again, the priestly garb would be worn by all. So are we to picture multiple members of the Essene community wearing the 12 stones and other items simultaneously? Or is there another explanation? Indeed, there is. According to Josephus, the Essenes were trained to tell the future, and they were training to become angels or celestial beings. If the breastplate is something activated from within our body, rather than material objects placed upon it, then we would presume that training manuals must exist for putting on the breastplate and the other spiritual tools. In fact, numerous Essene texts are devoted to teachings about how to put on the Essene and how to ascend to the celestial temple. The two go together like a NASA astronaut reading a training manual while putting on a spacesuit in preparation for launch into space. One such text is called Self-Glorification Hymn and tells how a member of the Qumran community ascended to heaven for the purpose of gaining knowledge, took an exalted place on God's throne in the celestial temple, and came back to earth. In fact, as Princeton scholar Martha Himmelfarb documents, boundary crossing of this nature was becoming common at this time. The Essenes taught that humans who have completed the ascension process, referred to as apotheosis and angelification, can also sit on the throne. Heavenly ascent was all but eliminated in the Bible, which views heaven as God's domain and off-limits to humanity without an invitation. The self-glorification hymn tells us the hero of the story 
whose scholar Morton Smith identified as the teacher of righteousness, is one among many humans who have been reckoned with the gods or angels. Again, reckoned means made equal to. Therefore, there must have been multiple copies of the celestial robe, or more likely, it was a state of being attained by they who knew its secrets, the Essenes. As Peter Schaefer notes in his book, Origins of Jewish Mysticism, in certain respects, the speaker of this hymn represents the members of the earthly community in heaven and shares with them his elevated status during their joint worship. In other words, the speaker transmits the vibration of heaven to the Essenes on earth. A key point about the Essenes is that they claimed attainment of the light body was a return to our original state of being. Whether we realize or acknowledge it or not, Western civilization, our culture, is based on the Judeo-Christian premise that the actions of Adam and Eve, the first humans, are responsible for our current spiritual malaise. This was wholeheartedly believed by the Essenes. Our timeline begins in Eden and ends with the book of Revelation and the appearance of Christ who leads a mass ascension to or reunification with a celestial realm, the kingdom of heaven, that completely transforms earth and introduces a time when all live with righteous values and hence have expanded spiritual capabilities, including the ability to manifest the light body. Further, the Essenes believed Adam and Eve had shining bodies of light and that our goal was to reclaim these bodies and the state of being that goes with it. As the Zohar, a later Jewish text says, when Adam dwelt in Eden, he was clothed in the celestial garment, which is the garment of heavenly light, light of that light which was used in the Garden of Eden. In my view, what this means is that when humans lived in Eden, they, we, were in a different form. We had perfect bodies of light, which were symbolized by a robe of light. Our soul lived in a high realm or plane of consciousness of pure light and pure love at one with all that is. Then, as the book of Genesis says, we disobeyed God's orders and ate the fruit, later identified as an apple by the Greeks, guarded by the serpent. After this encounter, we were evicted from Eden. Yahweh placed a gate at the east of Eden with a flaming sword at its center and flanked it with two cherubim. Then, the Old Testament God did something that many Christians have forgotten about, but which affects all. That is, God made garments of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. These were not animal skins, as some profess. Esoteric Jewish tradition maintains Adam and Eve's garments of skin were human skin that covered our original light bodies. As a result, our souls fell into physical manifestation or the matrix of Maya. We began to experience reality through the ego, our lower nature. We realized we were naked and imperfect. Both of these terms mean we are no longer in our original light body or wearing our robes of light, but rather are now in human bodies. Jewish tradition says that Adam and Eve's original garment was transported to heaven, where it is now in the treasury of the heavens. The Zohar affirms this, saying, at first they had coats of light, 
which procured them in the service of the highest of the high, for the celestial angels used to come to enjoy that light. After their sins, they had only coats of skin, good for the body, but not for the soul. And something we must keep in mind is that the Essenes did not invent the idea of the robe of light or the light body. The oldest version of stories referring to the robe of light come from Mesopotamian religion, as do some of the oldest creation tales. A garment called the Malamu was worn by the Masmas priests and was known for its whiteness, light, beauty, and force. It made him awesome and radiant, giving him a supernatural sheen. He was charismatic, like the gods. The Essenes wore bright white robes of linen as the symbol of the divine presence triggered by baptism and as a remembrance of the Eden-time robe of light. This is exactly the same as the Malamu. It is also the garb of the celestial beings. This is why ascension or attainment of our original light body is symbolized by this white robe. The key thing to remember is that this light body or its teaching or frequency was transmittable. For example, in the story of Elijah's ascension, we learned that as he was being translated into his light body form and transported to heaven via a celestial chariot, the chariot of the gods, he transmitted his robe of righteousness to his priest, Elisha. To the Essenes, Elijah was a person, but also was a state of being. They had eight stages in the evolution of perfect purity and the attainment of the spiritual powers of Elijah. Purity of baptism, purity from animal desire, spiritual purity, the purity of a meek and gentle spirit, the purity of holiness, the purity by which the body became a temple of the Holy Spirit, the purity which gave the power of healing the sick and of raising the dead, and then they attained the mystic state of Elias, or Elijah. On earth, this robe, or the state of being it symbolized, enabled Elijah to perform these miracles, to heal the sick, and to raise the dead, and to ascend. His acquisition of this glorious body and luminous garment, which was passed down from Adam to Enoch to Elijah, signals his transition from an earthly being to a holy one, or a celestial being. And as they say, in order to enter the heavenly realms, we must be dressed appropriately in the robe of light. The Jewish people believed that one day, Elijah would return and would be the herald of the Messiah. Later, Jesus identified Elijah reincarnated as John the Baptist, the Essene master initiator whose incarnation was announced by the Archangel Gabriel to John's father, Zechariah, a temple high priest. In Christian art, John reattained the robe of light, possibly having it given to him by an angel, and then transferred it to his cousin Jesus at the baptism, who demonstrated what I call the light body effect at his transfiguration when he morphed into light. From this investigation, the Essenes emerge as these sort of superheroes for ascension. They know that these incredible teachings that they have received from the angels about the light body, about our true nature, about our true history, will serve them, but ultimately they have a vision. 
They have a vision for a new humanity, a humanity that will live on a planet whose base frequency or vibration is love, light, and righteousness. And they know that while they may not have fulfilled it in their lifetime, that in some future time, perhaps even today, humanity will be able to remember its true nature and ascend to the heavens with the angels. William Henry, and this is Ascension Keepers. Just imagine if suddenly all you believed about higher consciousness, ascension, and your potential as a spiritual being was ripped away from you and forbidden by the decree of a king or a dictator. Then you were exiled to a foreign land and told that you could never again see your home or practice your wisdom tradition. This happened to the predecessors of the Essenes during the purge of King Josiah in 586 BC and is a pivotal moment in the timeline of the Ascension Keepers and in our own Ascension. After this event, soul groups like the Essenes, Gnostics, and Cathars were labeled heretics by Orthodox or mainstream religion. In actuality, they were more like reactionaries. They weren't dissenters, as the term heresy suggests, they merely sought to retain or recover the original wisdom tradition, which included teachings about ascension brought to earth by celestial beings that the orthodox religions replaced and labeled as heresy. In this episode, we will reveal the lost and secret history of this purge to see how this became the motivating incident, the necessary backstory for the formation of the Essenes, and how this impacts our present-day ascension program. Our story begins with the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, the ascension site for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Originally built by King Solomon in around 950 BC, this temple at the center of the world was based on a plan given to Solomon by his father, King David, by God. David brought the Ark of the Covenant to this site. The temple was to be the raised up place where the Ark would stay and where the Old Testament God, Yahweh, dwelled. It is said that Solomon built the temple by magical means. It sat on an artificial hill or holy mountain, a gigantic 37-acre platform actually called Moriah or Zion, the city of God or the place that God loves. And God is said to have named it Jerusalem, a name that means to teach peace. Moriah is called Evan Hashatiah, the foundation stone. According to Jewish tradition, God began the creation of the universe here. Even up to the Middle Ages, Jerusalem was shown on maps as the center of the world. The dust of Moriah is said to have been used to create Adam. And like all temples in the ancient Near East, 
Solomon's temple was the architectural embodiment of the cosmic mountain or the cosmic axis. It may not be coincidental that Moriah is phonetically similar to Meru, the cosmic axis of Tibetan Buddhism, and the root of Sumeru, where the Tower of Babel was located. The Essenes called the Temple of Solomon the Tower. In other words, it was a link between heaven and earth with gods and divine beings coming and going and humans ascending from this place. It was here that Abraham met with Melchizedek, a very powerful celestial being, and where Jacob had his dream of the ladder to heaven. Muhammad ascended from this place during the mirage or night journey around the year 621 AD. Muhammad ascended into heaven with the angel Gabriel and met a different prophet at each of the seven levels of heaven. First Adam, then John the Baptist and Jesus, then Joseph, then Idris, then Aaron, then Moses, and lastly, Abraham. King Solomon himself was one of the greatest magicians who ever lived. He received wisdom directly from God. Legend claims that he used the shamir, a worm or substance that had the power to cut through or disintegrate stone, iron, and diamond. Moses reputedly used the shamir to engrave the priestly breastplate stones that were inserted into the breastplate of the Asen. When the high priest emerged from the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple and sunlight hit the breastplate, its multicolored stones radiated rainbows. Because the symbols of the high priest's outfit, the crown, the robe, the rod of enlightenment, matched the crown, robe, and resurrection stick of the Tibetan rainbow light body tradition, I have proposed it is symbolic of the rainbow light body or perfect light body. This connection is key to understanding the goings-on in the Holy of Holies of Solomon's Temple and to what the Essenes were doing at Qumran and elsewhere. The name Moriah, the mount upon which the temple sat, actually comes from the root Raha, which means to see. It was the place where Epiphanes, from the Greek Epiphania, or apparition, where appearances or manifestations of divine beings took place. For over 300 years, these manifestations took place inside this temple. People saw God. He, or his throne, was described as luminous, radiating rainbow light. We will see this motif returning again and again in our exploration. This rainbow throne is clearly mobile. The depictions of thrones on Sumerian and Babylonian cylinder seals became the basis for Judeo-Christian images of God as a human on a throne in the stars. And when that throne landed, it did so in the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple. These appearances took place in the Holy of Holies of the temple, a golden, cube-shaped room with walls lined with gold and covered with images of palm trees. It was the Garden of Eden, or a recreation of the Garden of Eden. The shiny golden walls must have made it like being in a hall of mirrors. In Temple Mysticism, Dr. Margaret Barker describes it as a cube of fire, alive with fiery beings. 
The throne was flashing fire within a fiery cloud, and from the fire came the likeness of four living creatures. Ezekiel describes the Holy of Holies. Over this fire was a throne with a human figure upon it, and he too was fiery. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. On his heavenly journey, Enoch saw such fiery beings. They were like flaming fire and could take human form. They took me to a place in which those who were like flaming fire, and when they wished, they appeared as men, said Enoch. When the Temple of Solomon was operational, human high priests would enter the Holy of Holies by crossing over or through a veil of stars. This represented the border between the human and the divine realms. In other words, the Temple of Solomon was an intersection between heaven and earth where God, or the angels, materialized or appeared. Hence, it was a place to be with God and a source of salvation. This veil was what the Essenes termed the Raznahaya, or the mystery of existence or becoming, on which the wise were to meditate. This knowledge originated in the temple's Holy of Holies and was revealed to those who entered heaven and ascended. These people lived in harmony and resonance with creation, and they lived with angels. It's important to note the meaning of the word most holy. What this means is that the cube-shaped room and the objects therein, including the Ark of the Covenant, could transmit holiness and make anyone and anything that came into contact with this place holy. This is why access to this place was so important. It was also a place of ascension. Humans entering this cube-shaped room ascended to the heavenly realms. Clearly, we're talking about this place as a stargate, and it was in continuous operation for over 300 years until, in our ascension timeline, two key events now drive the story. One was the accession of King Josiah, a boy king who came to the throne of Jerusalem in 640 B.C. and his purging of the temple in 623 B.C. And the second event was the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, including the Temple of Solomon, and the exile of her people four decades later in 597 B.C. As the book of Chronicles tells us, in 623 B.C., during the 18th year of his reign, Josiah was refurbishing the Temple of Solomon, which the previous kings had neglected. During the Restoration, a high priest named Hilkiah discovered a book, the Book of the Law, given to Moses. When Josiah discovered what he said, he summoned all the subjects of Jerusalem and Judah to the temple and read for them the New Law. The New Law book? is called the Book of Deuteronomy, or the Book of the Covenant. It was received by Moses, we're told, in the burning bush. At its heart are the Ten Commandments, the laws of Yahweh. Deuteronomy's laws and ordinances were upheld as the new wisdom and understanding. It was completely different from the older wisdom tradition, which was now forbidden by Josiah we can begin to understand this older wisdom tradition by following Josiah's actions. More than just a book of the law, 
Deuteronomy compelled Josiah to go on a rampage, destroying the shrines and the high places of worship, the Asherah and images, and removed their name from the land. Then he purged the temple. As we will see, the Asherah is the symbol of the divine feminine. Deuteronomy forbade alien religions, altars, pillars, ashrams, and images. All were to be destroyed, smashed, and burned. Worshipping celestial beings, the host of heaven, became a capital offense. Looking at the stars was also forbidden for fear the people would, once again, worship the host of heaven, the angelic beings. All forms of divination were outlawed. Punishment for disobedience was death by stoning. All of these practices were later observed by the Essenes who claimed they were living with angels and were able to tell the future. At the core of the old tradition was the breastplate of the high priest. It was composed of 12 stones and contained the ephod. Inside the breastplate were two stones called Urim and Thummim. These stones were called lights and perfection, and it is the root of the name Essenes. The high priest would put on the breastplate when he entered the Holy of Holies to speak with the Lord. These stones were among five items that went missing during the time of Josiah and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. The other items were the Ark of the Covenant, the Flask of Manna, the Cruise of Anointing Oil, and the Rod of Enlightenment. All of these tools worked together. Returning to our timeline, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, flattened its walls, stripped Solomon's temple of all its treasure, set the city ablaze, and returned home to Babylon with the treasure of the temple and a group of royal prisoners of war. The Greek 3rd century book of Ezra tells us that the Babylonians took all the holy vessels of the temple, both great and small, and the Ark of God, and the king's treasures, and carried them away to Babylon. Thousands of Jews were exiled to Babylon, including the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel. Nothing is said in the Bible about the Ark of the Covenant after the Jews returned from Babylon. The Apocrypha states that the Ark could not be found when the Jewish people rebuilt the temple at the time of Ezra and Zechariah. Deuteronomy mentions none of these items. The reason why is because they were associated with the original wisdom tradition of the divine feminine practiced by the Israelites at the Temple of Solomon. In Jewish tradition, all of these items will be recovered by her son, the Messiah, and returned to Jerusalem when the Temple of Solomon is built. This will occur, we are told, in the end times or Judgment Day. In their place, was the closed and empty golden box they called the Ark of the Covenant and stories that the empty box went to Ethiopia or elsewhere. If this Ark were compared to a computer, it would be a screen minus the keyboard, mouse, power cord, and software. In other words, a useless piece of technology. This is why many researchers typically present the Ark of the Covenant as a golden box and do not mention its other components. They're just not aware of its history. But this was only the beginning of Josiah's changing of the gods. The mystic priests of the temple were evicted as they were considered unclean or blemished. 
these refugees fled to Egypt, where they built a copy of Solomon's temple at Elephantine Island. They are also believed to have fled to Arabia, Tibet, Russia, and China. One group who fled, in particular, catches our attention. They were called the Rakabites. While we may not be familiar with them, their story was widely known to the Essenes and in early Gnostic Christian ascension circles. Josiah tried to convert the Rakabites to the new law, but they refused. They were imprisoned, but they were set free by angels who took them to a paradise place where light was perpetual. There, the Rakabites lived with the angels and prayed for their brethren left on earth. Apparently, they were taken in flesh and blood form as, as the story goes, when they died, the angels buried them in graves and took their souls in light body form up to heaven. The history of the Rakabites says they wore garments of glory or light, just like the light bodies of Adam and Eve before the fall. These are the light bodies we have been discussing and the object of the Essene quest. The name Rakabites means people of the chariot. Later, they were called the Nazorum, a word very similar to Nazarene, the Watchers. The chariot for whom they were named is believed to be the Merkaba, or chariot throne, that was present in the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple. This chariot throne is the primary symbol of the old-time ascension religion Josiah purged from the temple. The book of 2 Kings tells us explicitly that Josiah burned the chariots of the sun. These are the chariots of the gods, the Merkaba chariot of Elijah. Deuteronomy does not mention the golden chariot of the cherubim that the Lord told David to set in the temple. Perhaps it is another of the missing items that included the Ark of the Covenant, the rod of Aaron, the flask of manna, and the jar of anointing oil. It was the Essenes who called this chariot the Merkaba throne chariot. They remembered it. It was during the Babylonian exile that mystical books like Three Enoch were collected. These books describe the chariot throne and are therefore known as Merkaba texts. This story is important as it matches precisely the community rule of the Essenes who sought this very throne plus the crown and the robe. Ezekiel, the tragedian, shares the name of a high priest of the Temple of Solomon, Ezekiel, which means he knew about the workings of the temple. We are told in a book that bears his name that Ezekiel was near the banks of the river Chabar on July 28, 593 BC, when suddenly a whirlwind, a great cloud with brightness about it, appeared. Inside the cloud were four living creatures. He sees wheels within wheels that have the ability to fly. Above them was a throne, and on the throne was the likeness of a man. Ezekiel describes the being on the throne as something that seemed like human form. Ezekiel saw the chariot throne leaving the temple of Solomon. He saw first that a cloud filled the inner court of the temple and then that this was the brightness of the glory of the Lord. As the chariot arrived in Babylon, Ezekiel saw a great cloud approaching with brightness all around. The brightness was like a rainbow in a rain cloud, and in the midst of the bright cloud, said Ezekiel, was a fiery human form. 
the throne moved in a cloud in his vision, which is often cited as an ancient UFO encounter, Ezekiel is given a vision of a new Temple of Solomon. And Ezekiel's story can easily be illustrated with Tibetan art. Ezekiel saw the chariot throne in its glory returning from the east to the temple, exactly as he had seen it depart, and it was returning to the rebuilt temple. The rainbow was the sign of the everlasting covenant mentioned in the book of Genesis. The rainbow around the chariot throne was the sign and seal of the original old-time wisdom tradition that was replaced by the book of Deuteronomy. This vision, which is at the core of the book of Ezekiel, became another key teaching of the Merkaba mystics, especially the Essenes. While the word chariot is not used in Ezekiel's account, mystics assume that he is speaking of the chariot of the gods. And while some might interpret this as a hardware spaceship, the Essenes knew that it was composed of consciousness. Importantly, the celestial chariot is also referred to as the sacred boat. And these Merkaba mystics claim to be able to duplicate Ezekiel's experience of ascending to the heavens in this chariot or sailing the stars in this boat. In addition to Ezekiel, they favored Enoch, one of the founders of the Essenes, as a way-shower. Before Moses, the Jews, including Ezekiel, focused their religion on Enoch and his books, which tell how angels and righteous ones initiated humans in the secrets of heaven. Enoch is a mysterious pre-flood figure who is mentioned only once in the Old Testament. It says he walked with God, which many assume to mean he was taken bodily into heaven. The Essenes made a sort of a superhero out of him, telling in detail how he was the first translated man, the first man raised from human to an angel. In fact, he was transformed into the great angel, Metatron, whose name means next to the throne. In one episode, told in First Enoch, we are told the archangel Michael came and took Enoch to heaven. Along the way, he anointed his body with an oil, that dissolved Enoch's body into rainbow-colored light so that it matched the light bodies of the angels. And in Christian art, Michael is shown wearing peacock wings. The iridescent peacock's feathers feature all of the colors of the rainbow and are symbolic of the light body of the angels. Enoch's ascension story not only told the Essenes and others what to do, but how to do it? Get on the radar of Michael and the other angels and find this oil. This is the anointing oil kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Importantly, John the Revelator saw the rainbow around the throne. And when he saw the mighty angel coming from heaven with his little scroll, he was wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow around his head. Scholars like Dr. Margaret Barker observed that Josiah's destruction of the older wisdom tradition, the ascension tradition, was more devastating than even the loss of Solomon's temple itself. In contemporary terms, we may say that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the hardware of the temple, but Josiah deleted 
or attempted to delete, the software of the temple and its vital code. It was a dismantling of the original Ascension teachings. What this means is that there was another wisdom tradition practiced in Jerusalem and the Temple of Solomon before it was destroyed. It was this religion that the Essenes later tried to recover and revive. It is the Ascension tradition of Enoch, Ezekiel, and all the Ascension keepers. It is based on the teachings of the angels who are rainbow light beings. It was also during this period between Josiah's purge and the destruction of the temple that the Queen of Heaven was abandoned. Josiah dispatched the angels from Jerusalem and centralized power in his hands. First Enoch tells how the Jews worshipped the Queen of Heaven. Images portray her as an angelic-like figure with wings. Deuteronomy forbade even looking up to the heavens, lest people worship these angels, and some believe it was because of the abandonment of the Divine Feminine that Jerusalem was lost. This version of history is also found in the Essenes' Damascus document, which was the work of the refugee priests. The Damascus document makes clear that the priests returning to the rebuilt Temple of Solomon during the time of the Essenes were not from the original Ascension wisdom tradition. Instead, they were Josiah's priests, if you will. They rebuilt the Temple of Solomon, and the Essenes had a problem with them and the way they were running things. They wanted their old-time wisdom tradition. They wanted their Ascension teachings. After the destruction of the Essenes, these same Josiah priests, if you will, were responsible for rewriting Hebrew history and calling the Essenes heretics. In fact, all those who remembered the Ascension Wisdom Tree teachings were labeled as heretics. We can begin to recover this spiritual tradition and early wisdom teachings by accounting for the items Josiah purged from the temple and or destroyed. We mentioned the Ark of the Covenant. But foremost is the Asherah, the symbol of the goddess Asherah, who is presented as an alien entity closely linked to the host of heaven. Asherah was the wife of El, the head of the Canaanite pantheon, and probably the mother of the gods in Canaanite and later Jewish tradition. Some literary evidence in ancient Israel even speaks of Asherah as the consort of the Old Testament god Yahweh himself. The removal of the Asherah, the symbol of this goddess and its destruction, is described in detail. Josiah took it to the Valley of Kidron, burned it, beat it to dust or powder, and spread it over the common graves. When Josiah destroyed the Asherah, he also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, the Temple of Solomon, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. These cult prostitutes were actually angels, the women who wove the linen clothing of the angels. We can trace the Asherah to Egypt in the form of Hathor, who was called the Queen of Heaven and who was crowned with the moon. The Asherah poles are likely the same as the Hathor pillars of Egypt, especially those at Hathor's temple at Dendera, the temple of love and joy in Dendera. 
Dendera is the Greek name for the Egyptian Tanteret, which means she of the divine pillar. That name is a reference to the Tet pillar, this device or world tree. Hathor is Asherah, says the scholar William Deaver, and other archaeologists.